0: Welcome to season six of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Stefano Bini. This season features eight sessions from COVID-19, the orthopedic recovery, a virtual summit powered by DocSF, the Digital Orthopedics Conference, San Francisco. It was streamed live on May 29, 2020. The summit was a global conversation on the challenges of resuming patient care in the context of an uncertain future and an ongoing pandemic. Let's join over 1,000 registrants from around the world and the world-class speakers DocSF is known for on the DocSF virtual stage. Welcome to session one of COVID-19, the Orthopedic Response, powered by Digital Orthopedics Conference in partnership with the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery, the UCSF Department of Orthopedics, and the OREF, the Orthopedic Research Education Foundation. Welcome, Brian Schwartz. Welcome back.
1: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm so excited. The session is titled Chasing the Virus, Pandemic-Paced Learning. It's designed to update us uh, on the latest knowledge on um, what's going on with the virus. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Is that Okay.
1: That sounds great. Thank you. Um, awesome. So there is a lot that going on in COVID-19, and I'm going to spend about 15 minutes hitting what I think are the highlights for you. I'm sure that many of you will walk away with some level of disappointment, hoping that I dive a little bit deeper into one area. But again, I think there's a lot to cover, and I want to give you each of a taste of what I think is most relevant at this time. I'm going to spend just a mere moment talking about some epi. We'll highlight some of the important recent findings in viral pathogenesis. I'll talk a little bit about the clinical manifestations of disease, where we're at at diagnostics today, talk about therapeutics and some of the new data out on remdesivir, and then we'll end with an overview of strategies for prevention. So starting off with epi, worldwide, I think probably many of you have looked at these types of slides on a daily basis. It's really staggering to see that we have almost 6 million cases with 350,000 plus deaths worldwide. In the US, we have 1.7 million cases with over 100,000 deaths. And it's, it's just really horrible to see that. The map of the United States highlights kind of hotspot areas where we're having more disease than others. And I wanna highlight two important things that we've noted in this epidemic in the United States. One is there are major disparities in the patients who are getting the disease. Uh, This was a publication recently from the New England Journal highlighting in Louisiana how black patients were the ones who were presenting much more commonly with disease. I can tell you from my experience here in San Francisco that our Latinx community is very disproportionately affected compared to others. And I don't want anyone to think that this is a marker of genetic susceptibility. This is really a manifestation of structural racism in our healthcare system. The other thing to note is that our elderly patients are being impacted greatly and that nursing homes and skilled nursing facilities have taken the brunt of a lot of really severe cases and morbidity and mortality. Um, this is just one publication, but the combination of older age, diabetes, obesity, other cardiovascular pulmonary risk factors have really made those places hotspots for severe, severe COVID. On to viral pathogenesis. So many of you probably are aware that the virus, kind of like I always think about as the analogy of HIV causes AIDS, SARS-CoV-2 causes COVID-19, that the virus SARS-CoV-2 binds to the ACE2 receptor the ACE2 receptors in the lungs, but also recently it's been recognized that SARS-CoV-2 binds the ACE2 receptor also in the nose. And there was a publication in the New England Journal of Medicine late last week that really highlighted a new finding that what we found was kids actually have much fewer ACE receptors in their nose than adults, which may explain to some degree why we've seen such fewer cases in kids than we've seen in adults. But really one of the questions in my mind is, how do you go from binding in the nose or in the lungs to this chest x-ray of diffuse pulmonary disease, ARDS, respiratory failure. And what I can say with clarity is that we do not understand this yet, and this is an area of growth. There was a publication that just came out also that looked at and compared patients who died from COVID-19 versus those who died from influenza A. And don't read any of the, the um, try to read any of the text here in the figure, but what I wanted you to recognize is that when they looked at inflammatory gene expressions in patients who died of COVID-19 versus those that died of influenza A, it was very different. These are different diseases totally. And that the way that COVID-19 stimulates the immune system is not the same as influenza A. And that's why mortality rate is higher. So this is an area for growth. The other thing that they saw in these autopsy specimens was widespread thrombosis and microangiopathy, inflammation of the blood vessels and associated thrombosis, which was unique as well. And I think you've probably seen a lot of reports around clotting in patients with COVID-19, but this was further confirmed, and this is probably an important piece uh, of, of the um, respiratory failure in these patients in an area of still of a lot of learning. Moving on to thinking about clinical disease. So this is a busy slide, a lot of information here. I want to first start off and look at the pie chart together. So first, I I would say when I originally had created a pie chart like this, we would say 75% of patients had mild to moderate disease, 15% of patients had severe disease, and 5% were in the ICU. But I think what is becoming more and more important and people are becoming more and more aware of, and this pie chart by no means is correct per se because I think we don't understand the burden of asymptomatic disease. and It probably varies by age and population, but there are probably a lot of people that have minimal symptoms or no symptoms or infected and probably a really important reservoir for transmission. So that is kind of what the spectrum of disease looks like in terms of severity. Now, if you look at the figure here of the person, I wanted to highlight first and start in blue of what are the common symptoms. And again, I think this is something that you're probably all very aware of, that the lungs are affected primarily in these patients and they present with cough, they develop pneumonia, even early on before they have true respiratory symptoms. We know that on CT scans, we can have ground glass opacities. And unfortunately, many patients go on to develop ARDS and respiratory failure. Constitutional symptoms like fever and myalgia occur. And that some patients go on to develop these cytokine storm syndromes. The other thing that we've identified as being very common are changes in smell and taste in these patients. and Something that I think, again, from a pathophysiological standpoint, why this is happening is not fully understood. So I'm highlighting that in blue first. In white are the areas of things that we've also identified as being associated with this disease, but probably a little less commonly. We've had neurologic disease. There's been reports of young people with strokes. Whether that truly is related to COVID-19 or not, or are these just young people with strokes who happen to have COVID-19, I think it, it is unclear, but people who are critically ill, particularly elderly patients, may present with delirium. We've seen patients present with conjunctivitis, which seems to be clearly associated. There are patients who have cardiovascular issues like myocarditis and develop a cardiomyopathy. GI symptoms, depending on reports, vary, but diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting, and sometimes transaminitis is seen. I mentioned the thrombosis issue that we've seen high rates of patients who develop clots, DVTs, pulmonary embolisms, et cetera. The last two areas that I've highlighted here are in gray, and these are areas where I think the findings are likely more of a post-infectious, immune-mediated process, but again, we're still learning a lot about this. The skin findings, this is still, I think, has not been clearly, from an epidemiological standpoint, a clear association, but there have been these ideas of COVID toes or acral erythema in the toes, um, and often happens probably after, but again, that correlation is still a little bit unclear. The thing that, lastly, that I've highlighted in the smaller person here in orange is the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, where this is a Kawasaki's like syndrome that happens in children. It is, we're seeing more and more reports of this. It is, but definitely seems to be immune-mediated and often happens later after infection in an area we're still learning more about. Diagnostics. Diagnostics are important and they've been evolving. And there are really three things, three types of diagnostics. And so I'm gonna mention each one of those specifically. I think the ones that you all are most familiar with is in the green box, which is PCR. PCR is detection of the viral particles, the RNA itself, and is the main mechanism we use for diagnosis of COVID-19. Most commonly, we use nasopharyngeal swab. I think we still don't know exactly the sensitivity of this test, 75, 80, really kind of depends, and I'll show you on the next slide, of where they are in their clinical course. If you do a nasopharyngeal swab and an oral swab at the same time, put them together, you probably increase sensitivity. Some studies have shown that patients who have severe pulmonary disease that you have higher levels in the lungs if you did a bronchoscopy, and um, occasionally you can see shedding in other places. What I would say is where we're not finding it is we're not really finding it in the blood, not really finding it in the urine. The other way that you could rapidly diagnose is using an antigen test. This is recently FDA approved, just in the last week or two. It's very rapid where you can get result in 15 minutes, but I think it's important to recognize that you are sacrificing sensitivity with the rapidness of the test. And so what one study showed was that it was 80% sensitive when they compared PCR as the gold standard. So if you say PCR has a sensitivity of 80% and then you're saying the antigen is 80% sensitive compared to PCR, we know that we're really struggling a little bit. I think the last group of diagnostics that's important to be aware of is serology. And I think we're still trying to understand how to use serology most effectively. Serology is not using, not identifying the virus itself, but it's identifying the body's immune response to the virus by looking at IgM and IgG how are we using it? So again, on the next slide, I think it'll become a little bit clearer. I think probably the main method for diagnosis is for patients who their PCR levels are coming down and you may have a negative PCR, latent disease, serology may be helpful. Studies so far have not really shown that IgM is really much more helpful than IgG. And there's a lot of variability and sensitivity by test. And there's been some nice publications that looked at that. The other place that serology can be helpful is an epidemiological survey. But you have to remember that if we're looking at a large population where prevalence is quite low overall, that having a, you really need a very, very specific test. And that if you have low prevalence levels and you have an imperfectly specific test, um, that you're going to have a lot of false positives and it's going to confuse your epidemiological data. We're also using it when we think about treatment and prevention with convalescent plasma. So the taking somebody who's been infected with COVID-19 has recovered, and now they have antibodies that might be able to be helpful for someone else with disease. And so how do you identify those people? You can use serology. And then ultimately, once we get a vaccine that's effective, we'll use serology to identify a vaccine response. So this kind of lays it out all together and I want you to start, just take a second and look at the orange line in the middle that says start of symptoms. And the way I've listed that out is day zero. If you then walk to your left and you see exposure at the other orange line, that's when the person is infected first. And so you can see early on there's a period of infection before you probably are infective, which may be three, four, some studies have shown six days. To highlight here is, the start of, do you see how the start of symptoms is a day zero, but the period of infectivity is actually before then? And that's one of the main challenges that we're dealing with as a community in public health is how do, you, how do you identify people who are effective before they have symptoms? And that's why campaigns on screening asymptomatic people is important. So the blue line here is viral load or PCR level, and you can see that you shed often before you have symptoms. And then shedding probably decreases, and the thought is probably around day eight or nine or 10 that you become culture negative and you probably are not be able to transmit it, you're not infective anymore. You can see when serology increases, you can start seeing it increase around day 10. Most studies that show that either two to three weeks afterwards that almost everybody, definitely by day 21, will seroconvert. And so this is kind of what the timeline and the way that I think about the changes in the different tests, infectivity in patients with COVID-19. Therapeutics, a lot of exciting stuff going on with therapeutics. So many different studies of so many different treatments are going on around the world. We have antiviral therapies. We have immune stimulators. We have immune inhibitors. We have lots of different approaches that we've been using to try to treat it. Given that we have limited time today, I'm really going to focus on the one that's gotten the most attention and really the only one that has shown benefit in a randomized control trial, which is remdesivir. And probably many of you had read the randomized control trial that was published in the journal last week. Remdesivir is an RNA-dependent, inhibits RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. It is only administered intravenously, so it's really given to hospitalized patients. And studies had shown that in vivo models that it probably had benefit. And so there were studies that were put out both by Gilead and the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases to look at the efficacy of this treatment. This is the data that was published in the London journal last week. And this is a preliminary data. They published it actually before they finished collecting all the data. But this study was done in a very robust way. It was a randomized control blinded placebo study. There were over 1,000 hospitalized patients that were enrolled in the study. And really what they found that was when you gave remdesivir, you shortened the time of recovery to 11 days versus those who got the placebo, which was 15 days. And you can see this is in the overall group is in the figure there. And it was statistically significant. There was also a trend to decrease in mortality, which was 7% versus 11.9, although this is not statistically significant. What they found was that the patients who really benefited the most from remdesivir were those who had hypoxia, required oxygen, but had not yet been intubated. But I think we're still waiting for the final data to really better assess whether there could be, are we just underpowered to understand whether or not there is benefit for patients who are intubated and have COVID-19, or is that a group that's really not going to benefit and maybe we should not be using it? I think many of you wear with some of the challenges that are going on nationally with distribution of remdesivir, having limited quantities of this drug, having it be allocated to different hospitals. And there are definitely centers that are having to deal with issues of, you know, I may have multiple patients and I have a limited supply. And from an ethical standpoint, how do I make the best decision about who is going to benefit the most? And these are really challenging issues. And I know each hospital is working on this. And there are groups nationally who are trying to put together some guidelines like the Infectious Diseases Society of America. The last thing I'm gonna talk about is prevention. I teach one of the medical student microbiology immunology blocks and I had used this slide the other day. I hope you don't mind my cartoon drawing. Sometimes it's fun to do this. In the middle of COVID, being able to do drawing sometimes is therapeutic. So when I think about prevention, I think about three approaches. I think about how do we use precautions or personal protective equipment? How do we use things like passive immunity and then active immunity like immunization? In terms of precautions, I want to highlight here that the top patient is not intubated. This is a patient who, let's say, is hospitalized and is shedding primarily through droplets. Okay, And I think that's the important thing to remember. So really, the way that you're spreading in an average patient is droplets. So these are usually larger water droplets that only are able to make it three, maybe six feet away from you. And then contact because occasionally these droplets can fall, they can get on a surface. And if you touch that surface, not wash your hands, put your hands on your nose, your mouth, your eyes, you can get infected. So how do you prevent yourself from being infected in these patients is through a surgical mask, not an N95 and a face shield that will prevent you from being infected from the droplets. And then the contact piece is usually gown and gloves. I want to highlight that this is really effective. This works well one of my colleagues i was just looking at his tweet last night who's been spent a lot of time in in native american reservations down south where there's been really big outbreaks who took care of hundreds and hundreds of patients with severe covid came back and said i was pcr negative i was i did not seroconvert ppe works and i want to highlight that The other thing to remember is that here in my other picture is the patient is intubated and that here is when we think about aerosolization. So it's really in patients who are intubated while mechanical ventilation is probably mostly the intubation process itself. Once they're ventilated, it's probably much less of a risk. Patients who are using non-invasive ventilations, patients who are using nebulizer treatment, high flow nasal cannula, those are ones where you can see here I have the big droplets but also the smaller ones. And those stay in the air for longer. And here you can see that now we have face shield, but an N95 mask plus gown and gloves, and these patients will also be placed in a negative pressure room, okay? So that's PPE and precautions. And if you follow those strict guidelines, you're not gonna get infected from your patient. How about passive immunity? So passive immunity is the idea of taking somebody who's been infected and then they've recovered and taking their antibodies and then give it to somebody either right before they're infected, you could use it, consider it as prevention, and that's probably where it'd be most effective, or giving it to somebody who's sick. So this is the idea of using convalescent plasma or convalescent sera. This is available, and it's we use it sometimes in patients, although I'm really curious to see there are randomized control trials going on, and that is going to help us understand whether this is effective or not. This has been used as an approach for many, many years. The other thing that's happening in a research space is the development of monoclonal antibodies. But this is not widely available, but there's a, there are a number of recent publications on that topic. And then the last thing that I'm not, I don't have much to say is about immunization. We hope that this works. There's some very early phase one data. Some of it's encouraging. We're hopeful this happens in the next year, year and a half. But I, there's not a lot to share at this point in time. But I think we all remain very hopeful that this will uh, help lead us out. That is, I believe, my last slide. And I'm going to end here and happy to take questions.
0: Awesome. You know, I got to tell you, I love those drawings. <laughs> that was great. Thank you Thank so much. You. And those every yeah. comments is a thing. Listen, we are running out of time, but there are two questions from the Q&A that I do want to take. Sure. Uh, one of them, and we can ask them as quickly as you like, one is any benefits at all from hydrochloroquine hmm. and the instance of cardiac arrhythmia is associated with that. This is from uh, Dr. Jeffrey Reed. Fried.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm happy. So the only way to answer this for sure is through well-done randomized control trials. And I, can, I guess what I can tell you is the good news is those are ongoing right now, and we will know for sure. I would say personally, based on the large series that was published in Lancet uh, just last week, some of the other data, I would say I am not encouraged by its ability to be effective. Um, There's data of people who are patients who have rheumatological diseases, who have been taking it for for their rheumatological disease, who get infected and develop COVID. I think we will only know when the randomized control trials come out. I can tell you that we at our institution are not giving it to anyone outside well-designed randomized control trials that have relevant and important safety precautions in place.
0: Awesome. Two more questions. One, I know it's come up a lot in the orthopedic community, has to do with the the ability of aerosols to be generated through surgical technique like reamings. And that goes back to is there any virus, living virus has been cultured from blood or organ tissue that's somehow aerosolized?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking that. So I would say that so when, when, when they've looked at, there's been such several studies that really looked at like PCR from like numerous different body sources. And I, what I can say is blood is not really, th- th- that is not the way this is transmitted. That it, Occasionally there's a tiny, maybe a viral particle that's identified and there'll be a PCR positive. But my general feeling is I would not be concerned about that as being a mode of transmission by any means. And if there ever is any viral particles, it's probably not, you're not probably not ability to spread from there. So I would, say that it's very unlikely.
0: Awesome. Last one. Mexico City, and this is from Gonzalo Vesquez uh, Vela, hasn't seen the peak of the curve yet, but the government is already opening non-essential business, and uh, we had a partial lockdown. Uh, your thoughts, please.
1: Mm. Well, I would say I'm not a public health official, but I think based in the question that you're asking, I agree. I agree. I- Hear your concern. It definitely, you know, is scary to think about active trans- lots of active transmission going on, and not put, having people shelter in place. And that you definitely would make me concerned that there there are going to be more and more cases. And you know, balancing good public health precautions with the economic challenges, et cetera, is a really tough decision. And I am. Very glad that I am not the one who has to make those decisions. Yeah. But as a public health, but as a physician and infectious diseases doctor, I can keep advocating for shelter in place and using um, these prevention techniques the best we can to prevent a new disease.
0: Brian, I want to thank you again for joining us. I know you have, to have another lecture to give in just a couple of minutes. I'll let you go. Thank okay. you very very much for participating. As always, you've shed great light. We love your drawings. It was very clear. I love the graphic of the uh, of the timeline for disease. I think it really clarified why some people who clearly have had the disease test negative. This will come up during the course of the rest of the conversation. It will help us use that 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 information as reference point. So again, thank you so much. And I am going to. Uh, Thanks yeah, for having me. Have you back? Okay. Thank you so much, man. Bye bye now. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the digital orthopedics podcast we aim to provide our global audience with practical and actionable knowledge for modernizing the way they deliver care to the orthopedic patient if you like the podcast please rate us on your favorite player or tell a friend it only takes a minute and it makes a huge difference to us many thanks to our friends at outcomes rocket the health podcast network and our producer dr Sheila toro for their work on this season Be well, stay safe. See you next time on the Digital Orthopedics Podcast.